Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been at Wildwood the last number of weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a series walking through Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, a series that we are calling Follow, because repeatedly in this section, Jesus is inviting people to follow him. And 2,000 years later, you and I have received a similar call. We've been called to follow Christ, but what does that mean, and what does it look like? Well, it looks like us following Jesus onto mission, in part, and last week we saw how Jesus uh, instructed the disciples to, to pray for God to raise up laborers to send out into the harvest. And then we saw how Jesus answered that prayer by calling to himself 12 disciples that the, he then commissioned and sent out into the mission field. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Jesus' sermon that he preached to those 12 before they went out on their very first mission trip. See, Jesus calls the 12 to himself, and then from chapter 10, verse 5, down through verse 42, Jesus delivers a message to prepare them for what lies ahead. And this morning, we're going to look at the first half of that message from chapter 10, verse 5, down through verse 25. And as we do that, I think it's helpful for us to orient to what Jesus was saying in this moment. So as Jesus is delivering this message, he is speaking to the 12 who are getting ready to go out on their very first mission trip. There is a, a really a training mission that Jesus is going to send these 12 out on. And Jesus is going to give some specific instructions to them from verses 5 through 15 of chapter 10. But Jesus knew that the ministry of those 12 would not be isolated just to one trip, but it would carry on because Jesus knew he was headed to the cross. He would be then resurrected from the grave and ascend into heaven. Some big events that were getting ready to happen. And after those things transpired, there would be an ongoing mission of the church that would carry on not just for a season, but would carry on all the way to the end of this age at the return of Christ. And from chapter 10, verses 15 through 25, Jesus looks almost beyond the disciples' immediate context to speak into you and I's ministry today and even looks all the way to the point when the Son of Man will return to the earth at the end of the age. And there is some advice, some perspective that Jesus shares about those of us who are following Jesus on mission that we need to look at today. So if you got a Bible, open up to... Matthew chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 5 through 25, and we're going to use this outline to help guide our understanding of these verses this morning. We're going to see two things as we look at these verses. Uh, the first thing that we're going to see is this. We're going to look at that training mission of the 12 and the perspective that is shared from verse 5 down through verse 15. Well, let me read those verses for us, and then we'll unpack it. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. 
Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now in these 10 verses, Jesus is going to provide some instruction to his disciples about a short-term mission trip that they are going to go on um, right after he says this. Now, what do we find out about this trip? Well, one of the things we find out is really the scope of that mission. Jesus says that they are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are not to go to the land of the Gentiles, and they are not to go to the land of the Samaritans, but they are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, some geography is helpful for this. Does anybody remember where this conversation was taking place in our context as we've been walking through? It was in the land of Galilee, up near the city of Capernaum. Jesus is instructing his disciples, and he's sending them out on a short-term trip in the land of Galilee. And Galilee is an area of Israel that was surrounded on the north by Gentile lands, on the east by Gentile lands, and on the south by the Samaritans. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is, I want you to go on a mission trip in this sandbox that we call Galilee. I want you to stay right here in this area, and I want you to proclaim the good news only to the Jewish people. Now, why is that? Was Jesus saying that because he only cared about Jewish people? No. Later on, Jesus is going to give them a commission to go to the ends of the earth. But Jesus here focuses on a short-term trip, and on that short trip, they are to focus on the people of Israel. And the reason why Jesus picked the people of Israel, of course, is because Jesus was a Jewish person. In salvation, there's an order, biblically, for salvation. It came first to the Jewish people before it was offered to the world. And so Jesus is making good on that promise by himself ministering inside of Israel and also initially sending out the apostles to minister right there in the region of Galilee. Now, he sends them out on this short-term trip to work inside of the region of Galilee. And what are they to do? he says that they are to proclaim. They have a message to share. The message they are to proclaim is this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Matthew, that message ought to sound familiar because it was the same message that John the Baptist preached. And it was the same message that Jesus preached in his early ministry. The idea is this, the king of kings was present. He was right there in their midst. And because the king of kings was there, that meant that his kingdom would soon come upon them. And when the kingdom of God would be established, then judgment would come to all those who were not rightly connected to God. Therefore, the appropriate response to the fact that the king was present and the kingdom was near would be to repent. The disciples are to go out and they are to preach that same message that John the Baptist preached and that Jesus preached. Now, the message we have today is a little different. Our gospel is is not that the kingdom is at the doorstep. Our gospel is that there is opportunity for us to have our sins forgiven and be connected to God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. But in 
time, space, history, the proclamation of the kingdom was real in that moment because the king was present. Make sense? So they are to go and they are to proclaim that message. And as they go and proclaim that message, Jesus gives them authority to do these miracles that he had been doing, to, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, to heal the sick. Now, if you were a disciple and Jesus said that, what would you have been thinking? At one level, you'd be like, cool, that is awesome, because I just saw what you did with Jairus' daughter, and I get to do that now, that's amazing. At one level, they would have been just so encouraged by that. At another level, they probably would have been scared to death. Are you kidding me? Have you seen me? I can't. I mean, I'm sick all the time. I've got hay fever, the ragweed's high. You know, now I'm the one that's going to be healing people. I mean, they just didn't jive with their experience, and yet the authority of Jesus was placed upon them to take out with them to authenticate their ministry. So on this short-term trip, they are, they are called to go to preach as Jesus authenticated that they were with him. Now, as they go to minister, it's, it's interesting what Jesus says to them. He makes several interesting commands that are specific to this trip. And one of the commands he makes is he says, hey, don't take time to raise any money. Don't send out support letters and, and take a month to try to get enough funds for the trip. Don't go home and pack an extra bag because Jesus is saying there's some urgency to this trip. I don't want you to leave someday. I want you to leave on this trip today, and there's not time for you to prepare. So I don't want you to pack a bag. I don't want you to go raise money. I, I want you just to go. Go into Galilee. Go to every city. Recap the places where we've already been, and everywhere you go, I want you to remind people of my message and I want you to remind people that the king is at the doorstep. Jesus sends them out. That's why they're not to carry anything. You know, sometimes people see that and they think, was Jesus saying that it's wrong for anybody who's ever in ministry to ever receive any support or money or, or to, to make preparations before they go? Absolutely not. This is this one-time trip. It's a short-term trip. Jesus says, hey, go. And, and here's the thing. Jesus was sending them where? To Galilee. Who was Jesus in Galilee at this time? He was a rock star, friends. I mean, people were gathering from everywhere. So when his disciples go out in his name, Jesus knows they don't need to pack a bag because people are just going to welcome them in. He says, as you go town to town, there will be people who will take care of your needs. You don't need to take care of them. You don't need to worry about that because you're going in my name, and they will receive you in my name. Not everybody, but many will. And those who receive you in my name, stay in their house. And those who don't receive you, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that, Jesus says. He even goes so far as to say, if people reject you for my name, then just don't even let any of the dust of that rejection stick to your clothes. Just shake it off. You'll be fine. That, that, that picture, that idea of, of dusting the, the dust off your feet uh, was one that the Jewish people in the first century would use to talk about Gentile lands. If they walked through a Gentile land when they left, they didn't want any of the defilement of that city to stick to them, and so they would dust off their feet as they left, saying, I'm leaving that stuff behind me. Jesus says, hey, just like you would act that way about the Gentile land, guess what? I don't want you to have the rejection of the Jewish people stick to you. It's going to be okay. I got it, Jesus says. Keep moving. And so he sends them out on this mission. Now, this training mission of the 12, this instruction that Jesus gives is, is for 12 people in a particular context in Matthew chapter 10. But even though it was a specific mission that 
is taking place here. I think that there are some applications that you and I can draw from, these pass- from this passage for our lives and for our ministry. Well, what are some of those applications? Well, one of those things I think we can draw is we can draw some understanding about the rest of the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, one of the most famous verses and one of the most famous books of the Bible, it talks about how the gospel goes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. The, the gospel is the power of God to save to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. When you read that, you wonder, what does that mean? Well, just flip back to Romans, or, or Matthew 10 and you'll, you'll see what it means. The gospel was first offered to the Jewish people before it went to the world. There is a salvation time-space issue here, and we need to remember that, and Matthew 10 is an example of that. The second thing, though, that I think we see that we need to remember is this. Jesus wants to involve us in his mission. I mean, there are so many ways that a creative God could employ to get his word out, right? I mean, there are so many things he could do. He could just automatically have a Bible in every language that's just sitting on the, the coffee table of every person in the world. He could do that. I mean, he, he's God, okay? I mean, sometimes you think, well, that sounds kind of weird. It sounds like a party trick or something. He's God, right? There's not limitations like there is on you and me. God could just have it happen. He chose not to do it that way. God could just have... You know, fireworks explode in the sky with messages written for people. He, he could have chosen to do it just that way. But, but Jesus chooses to involve people in taking the message to the ends of the earth. He chooses to involve you and me. That's his choice. We see it with the 12 and we see it continued even to this day. How does God want to get the gospel to East Asia? Well, he gets a hold of Abby and J.B. Wendell's heart and he says, why don't you go? How does God get the gospel into Devon Tower? He gets a hold of your heart and he says, hey, while you're there. How does God get the gospel onto the OU campus? He he does so by getting a hold of your heart and taking it there. How does he get it into Norman High or Norman North or Alcott Middle School? He does so through you. That's God's plan. He chooses to involve us. And just like I might be more efficient in doing certain tasks without the help of my son, I choose to involve him because I want to be with him. I want the fellowship. So the sovereign God of the universe wants your partnership as the gospel goes out. And so he invites us to be a part. Friends, we've been invited to be a part of the most important, most significant mission that's ever been. We're invited on that mission by Jesus himself. The third thing, though, that I think we need to see by way of application is this. We need to shake rejection off. Now, why do we need to do that? Because the hater's going to hate, hate, hate. <laughs> we have some people to listen to Top 40 radio more in this service than at 830. I tell you, that was rough at 830. <laughs> Woo. No, what, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because Jesus says that we're to reach out, and there's going to be rejection that comes, and yet we shouldn't let it stick to us. And, and you know we do, though, don't we? We reach out in ministry, we reach out to others, and sometimes we, we have a bad experience and, and we just don't want to do it anymore. We reach out until somebody says that we're stupid or they ask a question that we don't know the answer of or they call us bigoted or whatever it is. We, we, we just, we, we, we turtle up at that point, right? We, we do that sometimes. I, I, before I, I came to Wildwood a number of years ago, I was 
uh, leading children's ministry down in Texas. And uh, I remember one day, uh, one of my volunteers uh, came to me and said, it was her second Sunday, I think, in that class. She said, I am never, ever doing that again. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? Well, you know, some profound seven-year-old said something to her that shook her, right? I mean, we, we have moments where the truth we share is not warmly embraced. And, and sometimes we let the dust of that rejection stick to us and discourage us from being involved. And this is not just you, it's me too. Why do we do that? Jesus gave us some instruction. Don't let it stick to you. Shake it off. Jesus has got it. Keep reaching out. We see this training mission of the 12. We see Jesus provide some instruction to the 12. But he didn't stop there. He kept going. And Jesus gave some, some additional instruction for the mission of the church today on all the way until the return of Christ to the earth. Now, where do we see that? We see it in verses 16 through 25. Let me read those verses for us. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, we see here Jesus transition and begin to talk beyond the disciples to the church age. He is obviously talking and including them because they would be the leaders of the early church and but he's talking beyond them to those of us who have followed Christ in this age all the way until the point when Jesus returns again. Now, why do we think that? Why do we think he's talking beyond just that immediate context? Well, there's a number of reasons why. One reason why is Jesus transitions and begins to use the future tense in this section. Not just talking about their trip they're getting ready to leave for, but the one that they will carry on later on. Not only that, but Jesus here talks about ministry to Gentiles. You saw that, right? Ministry among the Gentile kings. What did Jesus just said not to do? Don't go before Gentiles. And yet here he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about another time, another season down the road. He talks about the Spirit of God speaking through them. That sounds an awful lot like what Jesus says will happen after Pentecost. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses here in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's looking forward to the time when the Spirit of God would come. Furthermore, there's a reference to the Son of Man returning in verse 23. This is obviously looking at the end of the age, something that is, was at least 2,000 years after this was written and counting. And, and not only that, but there are some historical challenges if you want to think that all of those things happened to the disciples. He's talking only about that initial trip because 
Those things didn't happen to them on that trip. We, we don't hear anything about that. They actually had quite a bit of success on this early missionary trip. They went on that training mission, and they came back, and they had exciting stories to share. They weren't hauled before Gentile kings. They weren't scourged in the synagogues. So for many reasons, we look at this, and we see Jesus looking just past the disciples' immediate context to what the leaders of the church would face during this era of history that began with the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and has continued all the way until the return of Christ to the earth. Jesus is providing some instruction to us. And what does he basically say? Well, he lets us know that we can expect opposition in this era. We can expect opposition. I mean, if the people of the first century looked at Jesus and said that he was Beelzebul, the prince of demons, if they would look at him and they would reject him and they would nail him to a cross, why should we expect as his followers to be treated any differently? Jesus wants us to know that opposition is coming. And this opposition that is coming is going to be intense. It says that we will be like sheep moving into a, a, a set of ravenous wolves. There was going to be opposition that we will face in this era, in this age. And that opposition would come from every structure this world knows. It was going to come from religious structures. He says that we will be scourged in the synagogues. There's going to be religious opposition to the gospel. Not only that, but there's going to be family opposition to the gospel. Brother against brother, parent against child, child against parent. What we do with Jesus will be different inside of families, and there'll be challenges that will come, Jesus says. In religion, in family, and also in governments, as kings we stand before. Jesus wants us to know that there will be opposition as we follow him in this life. And, and we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared for that kind of opposition. Now, what are some applications we might take from, from this section and from his words? Well, the first one is that we should be prepared. You know, why is it that we're so surprised when we take a stand for Christ and we find some rejection? Why are we surprised? Why do we, why do we act as though it's the first time it's ever happened in the history of the world? This happens, right? I mean, we take a stand on a biblical truth and somebody looks at us and says that we are not intellectual enough because we believe this book is true. Why are we surprised that they call us ignorant? When we believe that a biblical stance on certain activity is sinful, like homosexuality, and we take a stand on that point, why is it that when people respond to us and say that we're bigoted, why are we surprised? Now, I want to just make one side comment. If, if you're here today and that's the struggle that you have in life, know that this room is full of people that are struggling with something. But I also want you to know that we're going to stand on what this book says because we believe it is the loving counsel of God for us in this life. Why is it that we're surprised when people call us names based on standing in Christ alone? Why is it when we say that salvation is found only in Jesus and not in, in other things, why is it that we're surprised that people look at us and go, you're so backwards. Don't you know that this is 2017 and people know better? Don't you know that that kind of thinking leads to wars and challenges and all kinds? Of... Why is it that we are surprised when we get that kind of opposition? 
Why is it we're surprised? Even, even in this town, I have friends that have trusted Christ and then their family has said, because you're with Jesus, we want nothing to do with you. Why is it that we're surprised when that happens? Why is it that we're surprised when we hear about they have to leave in the middle of the night in East Asia and their friends have to go back a different way? Why are we surprised with this opposition? We, Jesus told us at the very beginning, he said, as you follow me, there's going to be challenges and you need to be prepared for this opposition. When you find yourself experiencing some rejection in Christ, don't be surprised. That actually may mean that you are in the very right spot. They rejected Jesus. Jesus says they'll reject us as well. Second thing that we need to think about in, in light of this, really maybe is best said by uh, Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this in the 1800s. He says, we are called to be martyrs and not maniacs. We're called to be simple-hearted, but not simpletons. What does he mean by saying that? He means we're not called to be a maniac running out into the world with a kick-me sign on us, doing everything we can to offend everybody we can. We're not to be a maniac, but we are to be a martyr. We are to be a witness to the things of God. And as God places us an opportunity and he places us around others, that we would faithfully give testimony to Christ. And if we are rejected because of that, so be it. We are to be wise like a serpent. We're to be a martyr and not a maniac. And he goes further. He says we're also to be simple-hearted but not a simpleton. What what does he mean when he says that? He says we're we're to be simple-hearted. We're not to view the world as a big chessboard where we're trying to to always work our schemes and strategies at whatever cost. We're we're not to do that. We're to be innocent and pure people. But but as, as we do that, we should also not be naive. And so it's okay to employ strategy. It's okay to, to think through some of those things. And so as we think about what it looks like for us to live out our Christian life and witness, we need to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Third thing that we see in this section, as far as an application, would be this. Be prepared for God to speak through us. Be prepared for God to speak through us. You know, Jesus makes a statement here. He says, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be hauled before kings. But don't worry about what you're going to say in that moment because I will speak through you. The Spirit of God will speak through you. And I think about that for us because when we talk about opposition, we talk about persecution, there's a healthy amount of fear that we would have. I mean, if if our country turns to where Christians are being rounded up and arrested and persecuted, don't you worry about what you would say? Don't you wonder where somebody who's arrested in East Asia or in the Middle East or whatever, what they would say in those moments? How do they find the strength to give testimony to Jesus at the moment of their opposition, at the moment of their persecution? Where does that come from? Well, Jesus tells us right here, it doesn't come from them. It comes from him. It comes from the Spirit of the Father speaking through us. Because it is Jesus to whom the testimony is given. It is Jesus who is glorified. It is Jesus who in that moment who can speak through us through the work of the Holy Spirit to proclaim his truth. And so when we find ourselves in that conversation that feels challenging and tense, we can have an expectation that God might work through us to speak his truth and his words. And certainly if things ramped up and the heat gets turned up a little hotter here, we can be confident of the same. Now, I want to just make one point, one, one closing thought here. 
When we think about taking the gospel out into the world and sharing the truth and being rejected as a result of that, sometimes we begin to wonder, should we really do it? I mean, why take the gospel somewhere and have rejection come upon us, have persecution come upon us? I mean, it's fine for somebody else to do that, but we're not certain that we want that in our own lives. Why would we do that? And I, I heard a story this last week that somehow I had missed back in uh, 9-11 days um, that I think is, is relevant to this point. You know, even when I put that up there, everybody's got a thought or a story, or at least most of us do. It's been long enough now that some in this room weren't even born at that point. But for many of us, when we see 9-11, we think about 9-11-2001, we think about planes being used as missiles flying into buildings. And there's many stories of heroism that came out of that, that era, but one story of heroism somehow I missed. And that was a story of a woman by the name of, of Heather Penny. Her nickname was Lucky Penny, okay? And, and Heather Penny was a pilot of an F-16 airplane. And as the events were unfolding that day, it became obvious that these planes were being used as missiles, that there was not going to be a negotiation, but they were going to fly into a target. And so something had to be done. There wasn't any ammunition on their airplanes, but Heather Penny and her commanding officer, Mark Sasserman, got in them anyway. And they take off and were scrambled to go intercept United Flight 93. As they're flying there, they understand we don't have any weapons to shoot that plane down. And the only thing we can do is to fly our planes into United Flight 93 and take it out of the sky. They were flying to their death. Now, the heroism of those on board Flight 93 had it on the ground before they got there. But they went with that in mind. Now, she was asked later on, why would you do such a thing? Why would you fly your plane knowing that the only hope you had was to fly and crash into another airplane and give up your own life? And this is what she said. She said, why? Because there are things in this world that are more important than ourselves. Is that a powerful statement? Why would we take the gospel into enemy territory? Why would we, we go out and proclaim the gospel and expect persecution in response? Why would we do such a thing? Friends, because there is something that is more important than ourselves. Because there's the glory of God, there's the truth of the gospel, there's the love of Jesus, and there's the eternity of the souls of men and women around us. Therefore, we go and we take the gospel with us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, thank you that you have cho chosen to use us on your mission. Father, that we would be people of great courage, leaning not on our own strength, but on the strength and power and direction of the Holy Spirit. Father, that we would proclaim the truth because there are more important things than just our personal comfort. That we would see you work and connect people like our friend Christian that we heard earlier about today. 
to Jesus. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.